Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nitschie. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. It's been a while on Brussels Sprouts since we discussed how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting Europe. Um, Key to that in this phase of the pandemic is the EU's vaccine rollout. In the past few weeks, there have been a number of snafus and controversies surrounding the vaccine rollout in Europe. So today we have the great privilege of sitting down with Sarah Wheaton to talk about some of these controversies and to walk us through on the rollout in Europe. So for those listeners who don't know Sarah, Sarah is the chief policy correspondent for Politico Europe. In this role, she focuses on top policy news, in-depth reporting and special projects and collaboration with Politico's policy reporting teams. Prior to this, she served as a senior policy reporter on Politico Europe's health team. And before moving to Brussels, Sarah was a White House correspondent for Politico in the United States and spent a lot of her career at the New York Times, where she was reporting on breaking news, the 2008 and 2012 campaigns and the White House in print and online. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. It seems that there have really been two big issues, two big controversies at play with the EU's vaccine rollout, um, really in the past weeks. The first is this discontent with the slow pace of inoculations in Europe. And then the second um, is sort of Europe's response to that and efforts to control vaccine exports. Um, This, you know, as we know, earlier this week led to Brussels essentially imposing a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland to control the exports. Could you walk us through kind of these two critical issues, sort of what's at play, um, you know, what happened this last week? So if we start with the bigger issue of the rollout, basically, Throughout the almost the past year, Europe has just consistently been a few steps behind the United States and the United Kingdom when it comes to thinking about researching and producing vaccines, when it comes to buying them, when it comes to approving them. And now, as far as actually putting shots in people's arms, Europe is behind as well. And there's been a lot of frustration about that on the continent, as you might imagine. And then that frustration has really boiled over as various companies have announced that actually they're not gonna be delivering the vaccines on the schedule that was originally expected. And that became especially bitter when AstraZeneca announced that their orders would be in the first quarter would be down by uh, uh, as much as as two uh, thirds to three quarters of what was initially expected. In the past week, we saw that frustration really boil over with AstraZeneca saying that they may fail to deliver up to two thirds or three quarters of what was initially expected in the first quarter of this year. And so in response to that, Brussels put together this proposal for export restrictions. And for a while they were kind of being a bit fuzzy on whether this would just be an insistence on a little more transparency about what was coming in and out of the continent um, or whether this would actually be Uh, countries and and Brussels being able to say yes or no about whether those vaccines could be exported. In the end, late last week, um, we're talking on on February 5th, so late last week, they did say, we're going to do an actual restriction. You have to get approval to, to export vaccines. And in this proposal that came out last Friday night, um, 
deep in the text, it showed that they were going to trigger um, a part of the, the Brexit agreement that basically would let them impose a new border in Ireland and do checks to make sure that vaccines were not going out through Northern Ireland. And what we heard later is this was just sort of um, technical people within the European Commission thinking, okay, well, if we're going to make these export restrictions work, we have to we have to shut things off going through Ireland. But this caused a huge political firestorm, gigantic blame game, blame game. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was on the phone with Dublin and London in the middle of the night last week, and it was pretty quickly rescinded. But it really reduced trust um, as far as how the commission manages things. It, it poisoned early on, early relations between the United Kingdom and the EU post-Brexit, and just generally has caused a huge distraction, even though that measure was very quickly rescinded. That is absolutely fascinating. I, uh, you know, on top of the spat uh, last week or so between uh, the, about the ambassadors and, uh, and and that type of thing, the, the poisoning of the atmosphere caused by this uh, this um, unexpected uh, politics between those is just, uh, it shows the long road that we have, I think, ahead of us in looking at the, the try to the, some kind of political reconciliation between the UK and, and the continent. But let me ask you, let's go back to just to what you were saying in terms of the rollout. As you were looking at the rollout and the issues and the problems that the uh, European nations were having, did you, or were they echoes of what we've been experiencing also in the US? Is it just, is it the nature of the beast in, in a way that um, rollouts that haven't been done like this before are going to you know, come up against these problems, whether it's in the United States or it's in uh, European nations, or was there something specific in particular to Europe where it was just, um, they had some unique problems that we didn't have here in the States? So there were some echoes. Um, and some things that were in parallel with each other. So obviously the frustration with production is, is something that we've seen in both places. And I think early on in the US, there was anger that doses were not being delivered at the rate that was expected. Um, but that whole kind of uproar happened before Europe even started rolling out vaccinations. Um, and I think that the magnitude of that particular problem has been less in the United States. The other area where this, these two issues were sort of in dialogue with each other is the two major regulators in the world are the US Food and Drug Administration and the European Medicines Agency. And people in Europe heard when President Trump was saying that he wanted vaccines to start before the election. And that led to a lot of concern that um, that the US FDA would make a politicized decision or at least be perceived as making a politicized decision, which is almost just as bad when you're talking about public trust. And Europe is the world's epicenter of vaccine hesitancy. And so there's a huge amount of concern in the European Union that even when they get the vaccine out and ready to go and available, that a lot of people will refuse to take it and they won't be able to achieve herd immunity. And so there are many things throughout the process in Europe where they really made a big deal about the fact that they were doing things by the books. And they knew that that might slow things down in the short run, but it was in order to preserve this, um, the, you know, this perception that they were really, they weren't rushing things in, in a way that would create greater risk. Um, 
That said, as far as, as unique problems beyond the vaccine hesitancy for Europe, there was actually a quote that Commission President Ursula von der Leyen just gave to my colleagues yesterday, where she said, you know, an individual country can act like a speedboat, whereas the European Union is more of a tanker. And basically throughout the process, you had to get agreement um, from 27 EU member countries. And that means when they, so the commission's broad strategy was to negotiate with drug makers to buy vaccines for the entire block. And even though the commission was leading those negotiations, they still had to go to a committee with all 27 member states and get kind of approval before they could, before they could proceed with these contracts. And each of those member states have you know, different national budgets, they have different risk tolerances. And so they were getting kind of competing demands from all these 27 members. And then also on the drug approval process, the European Medicines Agency, yes, does make decisions for the entire block, but, um, but regulators from, from all 27 countries are part of the European Medicines Agency. They all kind of need to have time to, to give their own sign off. And, and so this consensus-based process, which is really you know inherent to the sort of soul and the raison d'etre of the European Union, it slows things down. One follow-up question on this vaccine hesitancy piece. I mean, are we talking, when you say that, like what we'd say in the U.S. is anti-vaxxers, is that sort of the vibe of those who are vaccine hesitant in Europe? And then kind of a second question on that note, has the European Union's slow and steady approach, you know, based in reason, communicating this to citizens, has that done anything to erode some of that vaccine hesitancy? Are we seeing some of those populations who would be a little more hesitant, you know, more game um, to get the vaccine now? So the hesitancy versus sort of anti-vax question is, is always a complicated one and it can depend on the country, but um, we have seen France is actually one of the most, um, I would probably say they're moving in the in the actual anti-vax direction. They're, they feel that kind of more strongly than most other countries in the world. And we saw major measles outbreaks in France and Italy um, in, the, in the past few years. And both of those countries have actually had to impose major childhood vaccine requirements because parents were just refusing to vaccinate their children. And among public health people, the idea of doing a requirement is, is very controversial, but those countries just felt like they didn't have have any other choice. And so this was before we ended up in a situation where you know, we were talking about how quickly we were moving with vaccines, um, which I think perceiving that speed can sort of prompt a, a, a hesitancy in, in even people who might normally be very open to these more kind of longstanding vaccines like, like measles. So so they, they, I mean, the other thing about Europe that's fascinating to me as an American who covered health policy in the United States as well, is they, there's just um, generally like a more, um, you know, Americans are viewed in Europe as being anti-science as far as our climate skepticism. But when it comes to medicine, I see Europeans as being much more open to embracing sort of alternative ideas. So homeopathy is very popular in Europe and is often even reimbursed by some health systems. Um, and you just in general have more kind of concern about big pharma and a lack of, of trust. Um, and, and so that's another factor to keep in mind in Europe. Do you see the same political correlation uh, there with the 
hesitancy crowd and the anti-vaxxer crowd here in the U.S. in terms of, you know, usually it's the red states and, and the pro-Trump uh, group that has more of the anti-vaxxers as part of that whole melange, if you will. Um, is it similar? I mean, is that why you see in France this uh, greater number of hesitancy among French people, they, that they're also part of a Le Pen or a more conservative um, part of the spectrum in France and in other European countries too? I think it really depends. I mean, you're cer you certainly have big kind of anti-mask, anti-restriction movements in Europe as you do in the United States. Um, and I'm, sh I'm sure that a lot of those people are also kind of in the anti-vax bucket. But I think a lot of, a lot of what you see in Europe is, uh, especially in countries like France, is on the kind of educated left. Um, it's, it's people who, who, um, we saw this a bit in some California measles, measles outbreaks, you know, this kind of crunchy left is also like very concerned about like big business and um, feeling like they can't trust the profit motive. Um, and so it's, it's, you do, so you do have some of the right wing populism, but I think that you also have like sort of a bourgeois bohemian, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. I want to keep it natural, please. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I can sense you see that. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I'd like to talk a little bit about the geopolitical implications of the vaccine race and kind of vaccine nationalism. Um, so one question, I mean, we are seeing that leaders are buying up a lot more vaccines than they actually need for their population. I think one statistic I was reading recently is that um, countries with 16% of the world's population have, brought, have bought up 60% of the world's vaccine supply. Um, one question I have, is there a geopolitical reason for this? I mean, we've seen in the past few days that um, Taiwan has offered to kind of trade easing a shortage of automobile semiconductor chips for more vaccines from Germany. You know, is there a geopolitical reason that leaders are buying more vaccines or how can we really be explaining, you know, that vaccine nationalism? Well, I think it's actually a domestic political reason that leaders are buying more vaccines because, even as we see people out there criticizing na vaccine nationalism and spouting off things like no one is safe until everybody is safe, the bottom line is that domestic political leaders are accountable to their domestic voters. And um, domestic voters are very rarely saying, you know, especially now when we're all desperate to get a lockdown, um, everybody's altruism is kind of is kind of going out the window. Um, so it's interesting, though, to watch Europe's um, evolution on this. So basically, Europe's entire joint purchasing strategy actually originated with um, a rumor that that the Trump White House was trying to ex to secure exclusive access um, of a German-made vaccine from a company called CureVac for Americans, and this had implications for both kind of the European industrial strategy and for actual vaccine supply. And so the response was to say, by the commission was to say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna find ways to supply Europeans with vaccines, but also we're gonna take the moral high ground, we're gonna be anti-Trump and we're gonna secure vaccines for the rest of the world. And you know, Europe's, if, if you're somebody who thinks that that's important, then you really like Europe's rhetoric, but their, their actions really have not aligned with their rhetoric. So we did see um, the EU 
uh, give a donation, a very large, or not a, excuse me, um, we did see the European give, Union give a very large loan to COVAX, which is this effort to kind of do joint purchasing of vaccines for the whole world, including poor countries. But ultimately, Europe has joined the US and, and the UK and other rich countries in, in buying up the main, the main stocks of vaccines. And the other thing that, um, that the European Commission said was, well, you know, in, in making these purchases, we are bankrolling the actual production of these vaccines to speed it up. And then we'll, we're gonna, we, we are ordering more than we need, but then we'll give them to poor countries. Um, we're not really seeing any evidence that they're doing that. Um, the European Union, uh, uh, the commission has said that EU countries should aim to vaccinate 70% of their adult population by the summertime. Meanwhile, we've seen the, the World Health Organization even just today say, hey, if you do that before donating to other parts of the world, then you're gonna create this inequality, you'll fuel the emergence of these, of these variants. But you know, as far as, as domestic political um, um, mandates, I don't think that there's any, there'd be any patience um, in the European Union for, um, for donating vaccines when, you know, after only some 20% of the population has been, has been inoculated. Um, as far as the, the geopolitics that, that you were talking about, that's actually been super interesting to watch. So um, Jens Spahn, the German health minister in sort of defending the, the EU's vaccine strategy, he said, look, you know, China and Russia are using their vaccines and donating their vaccines or selling cheaply their vaccines to, to you know, less wealthy countries, and there are some less, less wealthy countries in the EU. And we, by doing this joint effort, maybe we slowed things down for Germans, but by making sure that like the Latvias of the world didn't use a Russian or a Chinese vaccine, um, then, then that's a, a win for the EU. But in fact, now that those vaccines are not being rolled out very quickly, we've seen Hungary um, buy both the Russian and the Chinese vaccines and use a process to, um, to approve those vaccines at the national level. We've also even seen now Germany start talking to, to Moscow about possibly producing the Russian uh, Sputnik V vaccine, which is now in talks with the European Medicines Agency. So ultimately, it seems like Europe is also not I mean, maybe now, you know, the Eastern European countries are not as, as um, potentially dependent on, on Russian and Chinese vaccines, but they, Europe has failed at keeping those other vaccines out. And it's also not engaging in its own vaccine diplomacy as far as distributing European vaccines to poor parts of the world. Gosh, that's just fascinating. I mean, Carissa, I think your point on geopolitics is, is right on, and I had read somewhere, uh, and Sarah, see if you'd seen this, where the Chinese were focusing a lot of their vac vaccination efforts on the Belt and Road Initiative countries um, at the expense of their own people, that uh, there were shortages in China, but the Chinese said, sorry, but this is going over to, to uh, Belt Road, uh, and uh, it's interesting how they're using it, and I think increasingly we're seeing this kind of um, almost a hegemonic uh, use of this of vaccines by countries to, uh, uh, I guess, increasingly to, to uh, for other reasons. And I, I just, this is 
I don't know, it's going to bring out some of the dark sides of, the, of human nature, I'm afraid, as we watch, you know, decisions being made in the future, particularly as we get into variants. But one quick question, you know, that uh, that Trump move, such as it was um, a number of months ago about buying that German company, or at least buying the, the capability there for the vaccine, that set off, as you point out, a lot of criticism. And also, it, it's and part of that criticism, I think, was was the idea that the U.S. was acting as a as a as a hegemon here that they, that they that can you believe the Americans are coming over here and they're grabbing this a lot of that was anti-Trump but also I think it was another view of the United States uh, that we were being seen in Europe as um, as a country that they they hadn't seen 25 or 30 years ago that suddenly it was this this uh, this country with big feet and and big hands coming in and taking taking from Europe. Um, did that, did, has that gone away or has that morphed into something else? That image of the U.S. Uh, coming in and throwing its weight around at a time like this, has that gone away now? I think it's on track to fade. Um, one point that I should make about the CureVac thing is that both the White House and the company have said officially that um, you know, that it didn't really play out that way, that that wasn't really the offer from the U.S. Um, and Europe ended up throwing a lot of money at CureVac um, after they made those claims. And we ended up seeing other pharma companies like Sanofi say, hey, you know, the U.S. is helping us out. Um, you know, Europe, you, you're going to fall behind if you don't also help us out. Yeah. Um, and and um, so two, two, as far as, uh, two further points as far as the the past and the future of the American role. So the, the Trump CureVac accusation happened really just like a month before he started talking about leaving the World Health Organization and withholding money. And so that certainly further fueled this sort of concern about the US just looking out for itself and not playing, playing its role in the world. But the reason that it was so catastrophic for Trump to pull out from the WHO is because the US was, was the biggest funder of the WHO. And the other thing about these vaccines is um, the US taxpayer um, has funded the research and development for, for so many of these vaccines in the way that no other taxpayer in the world has. I mean, basically Americans paid for the Moderna vaccine. And BARDA um, is, is something that Europe is now talking about trying to, to copy, but the early money that was poured in um, from BARDA has, uh, you know, every, every vaccine manufacturer that I talked to um, uh, over the past year has just gone on and on about how important BARDA is. And, and so, you know, America looks like the bad guy um, it has looked like the bad guy under Trump, but it's also because the U.S. has has really been contributing disproportionately to to biomedical research around the world. And so then, when it's withheld, it seems like it's it's catastrophic, and it is. Um, but it's it's worth, and I that is um, something I notice in Europe is is you know they yell and scream when um, when. A Republican administration reimposes the Mexico City policy, which bans funding for um, for uh, uh, family planning organizations that talk about abortions abroad, and they they get upset when other kind of public health funding is cut. But 
um, European countries, even when you pool them all together, are not contributing the same amount as the United States, even for things like tuberculosis that, that don't, is arguably a bigger threat to Europe than it is to the United States. Kind of um, on this thread of Europe pulling together, you know, a number of analysts have pointed to this vaccine rollout as this opportunity for greater European integration. Um, the European project is in a great place as a result of this. I mean, do we do you think that these controversies in the past few weeks have sort of shifted the minds of people in Europe about the future of the European integration project, of the future of the European Union? Sort of what do the controversies say, but then also what do some of those bright spots say? Um, and how is it an opportunity to pool more, more R&D? You know, is this one of those situations where out of crisis comes new opportunities and a chance to reinvent and to double down on R&D and to think about all of these things um, in the EU? So as far as the, um, whether it will be a further argument for, for more integration in the European Union, it really depends on, your, on where you're sitting. Um, and I should, I should note, uh, it's, it's useful context. So officially the European Union um, doesn't really do much to handle health policy. That's really seen as a very important authority maintained by national capitals. And so they will do um, EU-wide drug approvals and there are some other kind of pharma incentives, IP rules that, that are done EU-wide, but otherwise health systems, um, that sort of thing is all done by the capitals. And that's been another factor in this rollout. Um, the commission, the European commission bought these vaccines, but then they said, okay, countries like we've now done all we can do. And if you wanna actually get them into people's arms, that's up to you. And so that's another reason that we've seen a real patchwork around the block. As far as the more or less integration um, based on the vaccine rollout experience, um, if you're Germany, Maybe if you're if you're France, uh, if you're a big rich country, you're looking at this. And if we go back to the speedboat versus tanker analogy, you're saying, "I have a nice fancy. I can afford a nice fancy speedboat. And why did I sit around waiting um, for all these other countries? And now we're going totally slowly. And my domestic voters are really angry with me. And my economy is not up and running. And all these things." Um, if you're a smaller country, if you're Portugal, if you're Croatia, if you're if you're Latvia, um, you think this, you still think this is great. You, there's no way that you could have negotiated with six to eight vaccine manufacturers. You know, you probably you might not have gotten a great um, a great price. You might have made the wrong bet, um, and so you st you still are pretty happy with with the way this all played out. And so the people in Berlin and Paris who are trying to, um, you know, remind people that these trade-offs are worth it to have a more united Europe, they're trying to make the case of like, yes, like we went small, slow, more slowly, but at the same time, okay, we have open borders in the EU. And so if you want our, you know, tourist, tourism industry to be up and running again, then, then yeah, the Latvians and the Portuguese also needed to be, um, to be vaccinated at the same pace as us. Um, and it, it really will remain to be seen um, whether, um, whether that argument play, bears out in the long run, but that's where we get back to this screw up with the, um, with the, the export rules and the Northern Ireland border thing. Um, Europe doesn't have a coordinated 
health policy or a coordinated uh, health strategy, but um, are the bureaucrats in Brussels necessarily, uh, you know, they might propose something harmonized, but are we all going to be happy with that harmony that they propose? Is it going to be well done? They, they did not make a good case for themselves with what happened there. You know, that's so interesting what you just said. I, for my final question, I just totally shifted now based on what you just said, because you kind of laid out the, what's probably in London, where London is saying, we've got the speedboat. And, and I'm sure the, the, the Brexers said, aren't you glad we're out of the European Union? We have our speedboat, they're a tanker. Uh, you know, they're gonna go at their speed with their bureaucracy. And while Portugal might be happy, by God, we're the UK. And, and because we got out, we got our speedboat. We were on the first, well, we were the first to get a, um, a vaccine and, and we're getting it into the arms. And, I, and so I think what you laid out there, which was, was you know, that idea of maybe this helps EU integration. But, but like you said, uh, there's some that will say, well, not a good showing there. And a lot of people in London saying, you see, we were right all along. The vaccine rollout in the EU was honestly a great argument for Brexit. The UK is a wealthy country. They have longstanding relations with with pharmaceutical country with uh, the pharmaceutical industry as well. And so they were able to, to do these negotiations. Yes, they probably paid more than the EU per dose. Um, they also, um, a big factor in the EU was insisting on, on uh, maintaining manufacturer liability, which probably the UK let go. The US also let that go. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, they, they also approved uh, these vaccines faster than both the US and, and the EU. That may end up coming back to bite them. Uh, this is a whole other, other tangent, but there's a big debate about whether the AstraZeneca vaccine is, is useful in, in older people, people over 65. Basically, we don't know because there's not data. And so it took the EU a while to approve it. And many individual countries have said, we're not gonna use it on people over 65. The US has actually demanded a whole new set of clinical trials. Um, and so, but the UK was just like, no, we're happy with this. Um, we're going to prove it for everybody. If it does emerge down the line that that was, um, that, that they, they shouldn't have done that, or it doesn't really work in older people, then, you know, then there will be, there will be reverberations there. Um, but uh, the EU was always playing, you know, we talk about like the short run or the long game, like the EU is playing a medium game. <laughs> like they sort of said, we know that it's going to be slower. Um, but not, not that much slower. And we think that, you know, if there end up being safety issues with that, these vaccines, um, we'll, we'll, have, we'll know it, we'll be ready, and we'll be able to say to our vaccine hesitant public that, um, yes, we did all the checking that we needed to do. We held pharmaceutical manufacturers accountable and, and we all stayed together as a block. The final question I have for you, um, what is your sense of how European publics are responding to the vaccine nationalism? I mean, you mentioned that domestic politics were really driving that decision, but are they, you know, over there saying, this is what's going to get us the vaccine much faster? Or are they thinking, wow, this is not, you know, what the EU is about. This is not, you know, really what we signed up for when we signed up for this. 
I think, again, it depends a bit on the on the country, but the most interesting one to look at is definitely Germany because they are um, heading toward a chancellor election. And so it's just gotten completely gummed up in that election in the same way that a lot of vaccination issues got gummed up in, in the US election. And so a lot of the, the criticism that we're hearing in Germany is directed at Merkel and directed at the at, at people who are seen as potential successors to Merkel. Um, also worth noting that um, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, is, is basically, uh, Merkel is basically her mentor. A lot of people think that she's just taking direction from Berlin. And so if you see, um, if you see people from the center, so Merkel's in the center right party. If you see people from the center left party complaining about the vaccine strategy, it's a way to go after Merkel and her party. We we also see other rivals within the center right party, you know, kind of complaining. And and so it's it's almost a little bit hard to tell um, how how kind of regular people are responding at this point, or to what extent they're taking cues from their national politicians. Um, one sign that we have seen is that um, numbers, the polling numbers of people around the block who say that they're gonna be willing to get vaccinated once a shot is actually available to them, those rates have gone up quite a bit over the past six months. And so again, if we're looking at that sort of medium game, then um, you know some of the people in the commission who are really taking a hit right now may may in the end be vindicated um you know within the next year excellent well this was such an impressive lay down of all of these issues um and we really enjoyed having you on the podcast my pleasure uh, thanks for having me